again, this is episode 48 of Killinois with Bird and Cam. This is Bird, and with me as always, Cam. Cam, how are we doing, dear? I'm good. I'm good. I'm moving this week. Um, so we're super excited. Adam and I are super excited. There we go. There we go. Um, we've had a very, and so that was a little while since we recorded the last episode and, you know, time constraints and all life entails in this pandemic era. Hey, we're just glad that we can do, bring you some good new content. And, and it's something that we did have on the burner for a while. And in light of recent current events, um, with George Scott, that uh, recording this on Wednesday, uh, May 27th, um, guys, if you... Unless you've been living on a rock, should we, you know, we have to regurgitate the shit that happened yesterday in uh, Minneapolis. And on top of that, earlier this month with Breonna Taylor, that was a 26-year-old nurse, a central worker that, that is, who was killed in her apartment, got shot eight times by Louisville police while she was sleeping. Don't forget her boyfriend getting arrested and in trouble. I mean, but it was dismissed. He got arrested and in trouble for firing at police officers when they chose, they got the wrong apartment. Right. So that said, I mean, we're going to be talking about, and uh, the topic that we're going to be covering tonight is going to be in the ethos of this larger narrative of the shit that minorities endure when facing law enforcement. I mean, it's no, no way to to buck around that. And we've done episodes in the past, uh, Laquan McDonald, which you can find in the archives, um, where we've, you know, touched on this. Now, this is something that when I was a kid, uh, this, uh, John Burge, who was a police officer with Chicago police department from the 1970s and 1990s. And he gained infamy when it was revealed that he was pretty much the architect of this, this foundation of torture and abuse and coercing uh, confessions from African-American suspects and led to these, uh, led to murder convictions, wrongful murder convictions, that is. And like I said, this is something, and we're going to be here for about an hour and some change if you guys are taking a busy time out your schedule. But this is something, you know, that really is... Again, this happened years ago, but when we're talking about what's been going on in the news lately, and what's been going on in the world, it's really just relevant, you know? And like you were saying, we were talking about earlier with um, Will Smith's quote, that racism yep. hasn't gotten bigger, it's just being filmed. And, yeah. um, you know, I do want to say that not everybody in the justice system or every police officer is a bad person. No, none of that is true. Yeah. Um, but those that have taken advantage of the justice system and how the justice system works um, have have really, really, I don't know. I can't find the right words right now. I'm very flustered and frustrated um, because really I do is. have a lot of police officers it and really I do is. have a lot of side, but don't let it go to your head. You know, the fuck... Fuck the ones who let the power take over them, and they do what they fucking do. They're fucking. I don't. I don't even have the words for the type of people those those type of people are. 
Yeah. So um, in the frames of this research, uh, we compiled articles from Chicago Reader, Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, as well as excerpts from The Torture Machine by Flint Taylor and The Midnight Years written by a torture victim of John Burge and his uh, underlings, Ronald Kitchen. And before we get underway, Cam, can you hit the good folks with a disclaimer? Absolutely. Um, so again, guys, we're just here to do what we love to do, and that's just to give you guys a story. Um, we're not doctors. We're not scientists. We don't have PhDs. Um, we get all of our information from news articles, police reports, um, internet sources, uh, documentaries, things of that nature. So if there's anything that is incorrect or wrong, let us know. Hit us up on Illinois with Bird and Cam on Facebook. If you have something to add, um, let us know. Hit us up on Illinois with Bird and Cam on Facebook. Um, yeah, and we hope you guys enjoy this. All right, and with that said, uh, let's get into this. Uh, John Bird, damn thing indeed, pal. Uh, John Burge was born on December 20th, 1947 in Chicago, Illinois. Raised by a father who was a phone repairman and a mother who made a living as a model and occasional fashion columnist for the Chicago Daily News, Burge was raised in a duplex at 9612 St. Luella in the neighborhood of South Deering, which at that time was an all-white post-war housing development on the southeast side. Now, in research, I found two fascinating aspects of the area where Burge grew up. For one, just blocks from Burge's home was the townhouse where Richard Speck murdered eight trainee nurses in 1966, an incident that we did cover in the past on this podcast, which you also can find on the archives. And in giving you a good feeling of the mannerisms of the people in that neighborhood that they had around the same time, Martin Luther King Jr., when he was living in Chicago during a brief time around that same age, uh, same period he marched in south daring uh it was during a prayer vigils outside local real estate offices to which the marchers were treated with being hit by rocks bricks bottles beer cans apples and firecrackers so much of the vitriol that king faced coupled with a similar incident in marquette park that led the civil rights leader to denounce the city of chicago as just as worse a discriminatory, discriminatory place than any other city he experienced down south. So think of that. Dr. King says that Chicago is fucked up in terms of racism. That is telling you something. And Chicago's always been like a hub for, you know, immigration and people of different ethnicities to uh-huh. be there. So it's crazy. It's crazy. Crazy. Um, so giving you a sense of South Deer between the 60s and 70s the neighborhood experienced a radical shift in racial demographics and this was brought on by the white flight and now according to the community data snapshot compiled by the state of Illinois of the 15,000 plus residents of South Deer 96% of the population is either African American or Hispanic excuse me or Hispanic which is a stark contrast to when Berg um, came of age. So I'm kind of giving you a background, um, and we're pretty much going to try and tie this into what we're going to talk about later on. We kind of see a glimpse of the environment in which he grew up. So on to high school, um, he attended Bowen High School and graduated in 1965. Described as a good student, 
who's part of a student organization. Oh my gosh, I can't talk to you. Organization, such go. as the Key Club, initiated. Oh my God, I remember Key Club, um, which initiated which initiated food times designed to help poorer families in the neighborhood. What was the Key Club? Track. I never. Well, I I like I. That sounds like some like I went to the, the high school I went to. I ain't never heard of no motherfucking Key Club. I just put it out um, like that. Honestly, I it. I was never a part of it. I just knew people who were, and I could not tell you what it was about. Mm. I could not tell you. It just, they just did stuff. <laughs> like I just remember it being like a big thing. As big as like theater, you know? There's a bunch of theater people, and there's a bunch of key club people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's about as far as I got. Um, but anyways, the key club was initiated... Um, Food Times designed to help poorer families in the neighborhood, alongside the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps, which, if anyone listening uh, knows the structure, which is J-R-O-T-C, um, which teaches structure and discipline the way my queen, Meg the Stalin, teaches women about how to be a goddamn queen. Well, I will say this. <laughs> I will say this. Now, J-R-O-T-C, that is something that I do know about because I, the high school I went to was a uh, military school, and we did JROTC. And the only thing I'll say is, um, I my the beginning of my senior year, I was a first sergeant, and by the time I graduated, I got demoted to a private private first class. So that should tell you just how much of a good student I was. Five hundred merits, baby. Oh, you really, oh my god! <laughs> you have to show you have to show your picture though, and your you have you, you ain't know. seen it. Oh, I've seen oh, it. Fuck you. Okay. I've seen it. You're the cutest little kid. I'm like, oh my god, look at this kid. He's a big-headed kid. I hate you. Anyways. Oh, what a queen she I'm in Missouri. Um, Birch attended the University of Missouri, dropped out, and found work at a local Jewels, which I don't think they have Jewels down here anymore. No, no, no. um, Now, that Jewels, I remember going there as a kid. It's like on 106. It was like right by the state lines between Indiana, Hammond, Indiana, where a lot of people oh, go to the gas. Yeah, they 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 they, turn, they cut uh they shut that down some few years back. So yeah, I was gonna say I there's no jewels in Missouri. Yeah, um, I noticed that. And everyone's like, "What's a jewels?" I'm like, "It's like your schnooks." Nah. Um. Anyways, if you guys don't know what a Jules is, it's like a Schnucks or a County Market. Or Come on, we, li- we got people who live from Chicago. They know what the fuck Jules is. <laughs> well, man, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, <coughs> excuse me. Okay, more than this cough scares me. Shit. We're in a Sorry, pandemic. I have like a weird tickle. I'm Gucci, I'm Gucci. So anyways, I do work at the local Jules, um, which... I used to go to Jules all the time, not the one that we're talking about, but um, before he volunteered to enlist in the Army Reserve, before being shipped to Vietnam, trading on his experience in the, uh, excuse me, JROTC, Birch flourished during his years of service. When it was said and done, Birch would earn a Purple Heart, a Grand Star, the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, and two Army Commendation Medals for Valor for pulling wounded men to safety while under fire. And in the summer of 1969, he received an honorable discharge from the Army. So, while Burge enjoyed status as a war hero during his tour of duty, he 
he was exposed to some of the more morally ambiguous practices of war, in this case, prisoner interrogation. As related in a 2005 in-depth feature on the Chicago Reader, Burge was a member of the 9th MP Company stationed in downtown. The company held POW holding centers at the base camp and division headquarters and also used boats to carry soldiers captured the prisoners of war. Now, the problem was not all the prisoners were enemy soldiers, as some were civilians, any innocent civilians at that, that were just guilty of their proximity, if anything else. But these civilians were detained by the 9th Company. Now, according to a 9th Infantry Operational Report from early 1969 compiled by Chicago Reader, there were 1,507 detainees interrogated in that three-month period starting on November 1st, 1968 to the beginning of 1969. The questioning was done by the division's military intelligence unit with Vietnamese translators. Now, according to the journalist who did write that uh, Chicago Reader article, he interviewed those who were present in those interrogations, and they denied that any abuse of prisoners ever happened, and for the record, John Burge claimed that he was never part of or witnessed any forms of torture of prisoners on the part of his infantry. However, 9th Company Lieutenant David Rodoy, who was also interviewed, recalled a story in which a patrol of 11 soldiers from the infantry who went out in front to a neighboring village and were zapped to death. So the following morning, 9th Infantryman, believing that the villagers to be responsible for not informing the fallen soldiers about the land and its elements, went out and rounded up all the villagers for detaining. According to Rodoy, to get information from these people, the soldiers had the villagers wired up in the POW camp with the intention to electrically shock them if they didn't reveal any pertinent information, only to be interrupted by a surprise visit by famous actor, actor James Stewart, pretty much the guy from A Wonderful Life, uh, who, like many celebrities of his time, toured Vietnam to entertain the troops. Now, Stewart wanted to visit the camp and was gently whisked away by the soldiers, but the villagers were spared of being electrocuted. As Rodoy uh, put it, as far as we were concerned, after all of those Americans died, it really didn't make any difference. The prisoner torture happened a lot. I just didn't want to know. My people didn't want to know. That was it, basically. But I can understand if they did something like that and they were trying to get some fast information, that was the way to do it. So we see here, again, this is something that John Burt, even though he said, oh, this never happened, it's a clear contradiction of that. And when you see, okay, this is what we're getting, we get, we get information from that. We're getting five results. And it gets the job done. And again, exactly. there's fuck, fuck the moral aspects of it. And again, it's going to tie in a lot of what we're talking about as we get into this story. Exactly. So John Birch, fresh off the tour of duty, he's branded a war hero and armed with this belief of structure and law and order and parlays all that to gain his dream job, which, what, as an officer with Chicago Police Department, he joined the force in 1970. On the surface, one can view Burge's police career just like all of the stages in his life, you know, were one of distinguished. Over the course of his 20-plus years on the force, Burge earned promotions to detective, just two years after being sworn in, sergeant five years later. And after that, 
lieutenant in 1981. He did all this shit in 11 years. Uh-huh. And then after that, he finally became commander. In that in same, same year? In that the same, same fucking year. year. They must have been short. They must have not had employees. I, <laughs> they must, nobody probably wanted to be a police officer at this time. And they were just like, fuck. Um, anyways, at this time, Burge served numerous forces, including robbery, arson, and violent crimes. He also earned three commendations and 13. even a record. What? It's 13 commendations, I think. What did I say? Three? Three. Oh my god, I meant 13. Sorry, guys. Um, anyways, 13. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to talk him up because he doesn't deserve it. Oh, no, no, um, no, no, no. He's a little bastard. You're, you're right with that. <laughs> Um, three or thirteen, three plus ten, um, commendations and even a recommendatory letter from the Department of Justice. However, the key word in what I just said a minute ago was on the surface. I hope you guys heard that because I'm blabbering shit right now. Infamous, inf, 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 I said infamous emphasis. Like I'm, I'm fucking up words too. On the word, <laughs> yeah. There we go. Emphasize. Being promoted to detective in 1972, Burge became uh, began to install unorthodox practice unorthodox practices to ensure that the crimes brought to his jurisdiction would be solved. And this kind of reminds me of that new Netflix show with the the scientist who was doing the drugs in the lab. And anyways, back to the story. Um, so for him to achieve this desired effect, Virgin officers under his command in police custody, federal uh, prosecutors stated that Virgin uh, use of torture began in 1972. That's only two years after uh-huh. he started the police force. Anyways, he was a leader of a group of police officers known variously as the Midnight Crew or Burge's Ass Kickers or the A-Team. Ugh. And these guys abuse suspects, and they did this to coarse confessions, leading to subsequent convictions. And it would be revealed from affidavit, testimonies, books, newspaper articles, and so on, and all these other various platforms that Midnight Crew used methods of torture that included beating, suffocation, burning, sexual assault, and through a use of either a sex toy or a weapon, Electrical shock to, or excuse me, electrical shock to the genitals, and among many, many other methods. We can literally go on and on and on about these victims and what they had to go to. Because on the record, at least 118 men came out and alleged that they were victim of this torture. Because the fucked up thing is, on the strength of getting tortured, they then get convicted of the violent crimes. And then they're given sentences of life or even death. And for proximity's sake, we're going to highlight two instances that best sums up the twisted, demented, fucked up regime that was Commander John Burge. I just want to preface that we're talking about police officers from the Chicago Police Department who is, again, piggyback on what Cam said, in methods of interrogation torture, they beat, suffocated, burned, and assaulted people. First of all, these not even, even if they did this shit, if they did the crime suspected, nobody fucking deserves that shit. Yeah, I get, I totally get, you know, 
deny, deny, deny. But fuck, man. Just but we're talking to those extremes. And again, we're gonna and we're getting into like more de- details. But this is the fucking Chicago Police Department, and you see why people have a tr- just a disdain for police. People in my community, why they have a disdain? It is shit like that. And when people are like, oh no, this didn't happen. This is fake news. Fuck you if you believe that. This shit happened. So, we're in the early part of 1982. The South Side of Chicago is experiencing an uptick of several shootings where law enforcement officers were the victims. In one instance, two Cook County Sheriff's officers were wounded while responding to a call. And in a separate incident, rookie Chicago police officer James Doyle was shot and killed on the 79th Street CTA bus on February 5th. On February 9th, 1982, hours after attending the funeral of James Doyle, patrolman William P. Fahey and Richard J. O'Brien stopped the brown Chevy Impala on the intersection of 81st and Morgan Street, located on the city's southwest side. In the passenger seat of the car was 29-year-old Andrew Wilson, while his brother, 21-year-old Jackie, was behind the wheel. Andrew, who had just been recently paroled months before after serving six years of an armed robbery, was in the midst of another crime spree when he was stopped by Fahey and O'Brien for what the officers thought was a routine traffic stop. Andrew was ordered out of the car by Fahey, and while subdued, Andrew blitzed Fahey, taking his gun, shooting him in the head, and then shot O'Brien five times. And the brother sped off. O'Brien was dead on arrival at the little company of Mary Hospital, and Fahey died the next day. Now, this last incident occurred within Burge's jurisdiction. As we mentioned earlier, he was promoted to lieutenant commanding officer of Area 2 just with the year before. But Burge was hell-bent to catch those responsible. And with the city's police department on edge, he was given the green light by then-Mayor Jane Byrne and the police superintendent to launch a citywide effort to pick up suspects and arrest them. But in the midst of trying to find the culprits, Burge and his fellow officers under his watch were able to showcase their branding policing. And the procedures that came with it included, get this cam, handcuffing subjects to stationary objects for entire days, shooting, uh, shooting the pets, not with just pers- of, of, of uh, suspects, but suspected persons of interest and more egregious, holding guns to the heads of minors. That's right. Holding guns to the heads of minors. And as you... Ex- I would be fucked up if that happened as a minor. I would be fucked up. And, and as you expect, and, and it pretty much just uh, steamrolled to just pretty much a dragnet. If anybody they see, they get fucking free reign of, okay, we're just going to do whatever the fuck we can, and tough shit. We got a badge. We have yeah. a mandate to do this shit. And, as you expect, the black community is pissed. Jesse Jackson likened the martial law tactics to that of the Nazi SS during Kristallnacht. The Chicago Defender and black Chicago police officers were outraged. Renaud Robinson, president of Chicago's Afro-American Police League at the time, characterized the operation as sloppy police work, a matter of racism. In time, after numerous suspects were named, Andrew and Jackie Wilson were eventually tied to the crime. 
as it was revealed that the brothers had committed a burglary with them earlier on the day of the police killings. Andrew Wilson was arrested on the morning of February 14, 1982, for the murder of those last two police officers, and by the end of the day, Wilson had confessed. However, instead of being transported to the county jail, he was taken by police and admitted to Mercy Hospital Medical Center. Now, why? Why, Cam? Hmm. Well, the next day, Andrew Wilson was visited in the hospital by his public defender, Dale Coventry. Oh, Dale. And he revealed that he'd been shocked, burned by a radiator, suffocated with a plastic bag, and kicked in the iron beam. However, I might have done the same thing, though, because he did kill two innocent people. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And, and, and how, do, how do I even kind of navigate this? In the, ter- in the frames of, okay, there's, there's, no, there's no question that Wilson is the murderer. Yeah, there's no there's no argument against it. But that said, there is a due process in how you get that no matter how uh the suspect or how feelings because again, you know it as when it comes to one of their own and yeah. there's a more of a determined effort, but when you place the shit that they were doing beforehand, don't mm-hmm. know about that, my chief, my guy. I don't yeah. like it's just one of those things that they're already on edge and they've they've put in fucking guns to minors' heads. Yeah, so, see all of that is bullshit. All of that. Mm-hmm. I think I think they should not have done that. However, I do think actually this is why I couldn't be a police officer. I take things I'm far too emotional. I would start if someone says something about my mom, I'm gonna start beating them up. So mm-hmm. um, that's why I couldn't do it. But I do believe, um, you know, like you said, you know, when one person falls in the in the family, you know, everybody gets behind it and all hands on mm. deck. Um, and I don't think any of those previous things should have happened. Right. But Andrew Wilson, fuck you, you're kind of an asshole piece of shit. Anyways, past this, he um, was at the hospital, like we were stating, because he was shocked, burned by a radiator, suffocated with a plastic bag, kicked in the eye, and beaten. Coventry had photos of a huge burn on his client's thigh, parallel burns on his chest, ugh, and a strange U-shaped puncture mark on his nose and ears. Wilson said the marks came from an alligator clip attached to wires, leading to a hand-cranked electrical device. That's almost pre- that's premeditated, I feel mm-hmm. like. Um, especially because it's hand-cranked and probably handmade. Right. Um, he said that bird shocked him on his genitals, and his back with a second device that resembled a curling iron. Fuck that, that shit hurts. Oh. Um, I fucking hate curling iron burns. Um, but during trial in 1983, Wilson was convicted of the killings and given a death penalty sentence. His brother Jackie was convicted as an accomplice and given a life sentence. Both appealed their convictions. In 1985, Jackie Wilson's conviction was overturned by the Illinois Appellate Court because his right to remain silent had not been properly explained by the police. Now, as Andrew Wilson had been given a death sentence, his case was not reviewable on the same grounds by the Appellate Court, and it went directly to the Supreme Court. So, for 15 hours, Jack, uh, Andrew Wilson and his brother Jackie were, uh, more so Andrew, 
Uh, I've been looking in the, in the research from those, maybe Jackie too, but uh, Andrew Wilson was subjected to this torture, and because of that, eventually confessed to involvement in the February 9th fatal shootings of the police officers. Now, it goes without saying that there appear to be no doubt, at least, that these um, this was the killer, Andrew Wilson. No doubt about that, and I mean... Given the frame frameworks, like he deserved to be, you know, arrested and convicted. Now, where the torture comes in, and again, we're talking about at the end of the day that we had 118th that came forward because you know something like this, it wasn't just 118. It was more, Not more. And that's all that reported it. Mm-hmm. That's all you reported it. And, and what we're going to talk about is this. That's and, awesome. Yep. And when we talk about that, again, some of the cases, some of the instances of these men, they were wrongly wrongfully convicted. And they were subjected to this torture. So, it's just one of those things is that, what the fuck? So, it was the injuries of Andrew that alarmed the medical officer to the point that he sent a memo to then Cook County State Attorney Richard M. Daly asking for his case to be oh. invested. Why have you heard that name before, Cam? Who asking for his case? (laughs) Asking for his case to be investigated on suspicion of police brutality. Wilson identified Burge and Detective John Eucalyptus as the key interrogators, but said at least a dozen officers had been involved in the beating and torture. And additionally, a female detective had taken part, taken part in the handcuffing that preceded him being electrocuted. Now, Wilson alleged that he told Assistant State Attorney Larry Hyman that he had been tortured. But later in the day, when he took Wilson's confession with a court reporter present, Hyman failed to ask a recommended question about if the statement was given voluntarily or not. And despite the snafu of Hyman, despite the allegations of Wilson and the memo sent by the medical officer confirming that the abuse took and took in place... Daly did nothing, and to reinforce that lack of interest, sat on his hands when the Illinois Supreme Court eventually threw out Andrew Wilson's conviction and death sentence in 1987. And somehow, how he got the black vote all those times when he ran for for election and re-election as mayor, wow, you talk about some kind of fucking Mandela effect, right? Now, um, eventually... Uh, Wilson did have enough to go through a second trial and Wilson was convicted without the confession and a jury sentenced him to natural life instead of death. And as for Jackie Wilson, he was convicted again and served 36 years in prison before release late uh, in 2018. Let me correct what I was saying earlier that Wilson deserved to be tortured. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he willingly said he did it, then you can torture and beat him up. No, um, I'm not torturing to it. No, I'm not torturing him. No, fuck no. I would because be you're making so you're making it no better. That's the thing. Two wrongs don't make a right. I know. I'm just taking the whole. You know, mm-hmm. I'm too. Oh, this and, is why again, this is my thing. Is this again? When we're when we're talking about the frameworks of what these motherfucking police officers were doing beforehand, and I guess with the benefit of hindsight, twenty twenty. Oh, Bullshit. man, I'm yeah. like, like I said, in doing this, I'm just, 
containing yeah. my rage because I am just getting just incensed and incensed. But yeah. as we nobody, it, nobody, nobody deserves to be tortured and beat up by a group of fucking police officers. There we go. They're protect, protect you mm-hmm. and serve you. Yeah. Not fucking beat you up and um. But we'll get back to Andrew Wilson because even though he's reconvicted, the story was far from over. Um, but uh, what also wasn't over was the inhumane practices that Burge and Area 2 detectives inflicted upon detainees. And we'll talk about that now. So from the words of a survivor of this torture, just this is just what the fuck we've been dealing with. And when we talk about these six son of bitches... This is what they were capable of. And they didn't fucking bat an eye doing this. Uh-huh. On July 7, 1988, the bodies of two young women and three children were discovered in a burning home on the south side of Chicago. A murder investigation would ensue. And nine days later, 22-year-old Ronald Kitchen and 29-year-old Marvin Reeves were identified as the prime suspects in the murders. Now, this was after an... an and prison informant Willie Williams contacted a Chicago police officer and alleged that Kitchen had confessed to the murder alongside Reed. So he said, he said, she said kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the police and Willie, <laughs> Willie Williams uh, tried to catch Kitchen in the bait. And in early August, Williams called Kitchen nearly 40 times. 40 times. Fuck mm. that. In the hopes of tripping the suspect up. But Kitchen never admitted to it. On August, honestly, after 40 times, I'd block your number. Don't call oh, me yeah. 40 times. Don't call me 40 times in, in a, like, a fucking day. Like, don't do that. <sighs> anyway, um, on August 25th, 1988, the police decided to take the matters in their own hands. As Kitchen was arrested by the Commander Burge and brought in for questioning, from the onset, Kitchen was subjected to physical and verbal abuse from Burge and his What Follows was described in detail by Kitchen in his memoir, The Midnight Years, which shows Kitchen being interrogated by Detective Michael Kill, one of Burge's men, many, many underlings. So this is what this is what it starts off with, this excerpt. This is what you did, Detective Kill sneered at me. And again, this is quoting by quote what Ronald Kitchen in his book this is what you did, Detective Kill sneered at me as he shuffled photographs around on the desk. Nigger, we know you did this. Hours more had slipped away. The ordeal had destroyed any sense of time. I had no idea how long I had been here or whether it was day or night. Despite all that I had been through, I still only had the most general notion about what crime the Homicide Squad was even investigating. I glanced for an instant at the pictures on the tabletop and turned away in horror. They were too gruesome to look at for long. The officer clutched my head and forced it down, making me stare at the photos. I saw crime scene snapshots of dead, disfigured bodies. The charred and burned remains of two young women and three little babies. Nigger, Kill snailed, we got you on record saying you did this. With a sinking feeling, I suddenly understood the depths of my trouble. The mystery of my ordeal, the secrecy and torture, finally snapped into focus. They wanted me for mass murder. A big detective, who was later revealed to be John Burge, the same officer who had brought Kitchen into custody, entered the interrogation room, 
playing the role of good cop, he asked if Kitchen was okay and offered him something to eat. Kitchen replied that he just wanted to know what evidence they had on him. To then, Burge brought out the case file. As Kitchen stated, my hands were still cupped, so he set the papers on the desk and turned the pages. I scanned the document to see the name of the person who had fingered me to the detectives. When I saw it, I almost laughed. It was an acquaintance, at best. A neighborhood guy whose sister was dating my cousin, thinking Willie, Willie Williams. Oh, man. That fucking name, Willie Williams. In the statement, he claimed that we had talked over the phone and that during several of these conversations, I had bragged to him about committing the murders. Now, again, he talked to him for, what, was 40 times? Again, over a month period. And and as record show, he never fessed up. So this is what the fuck we're dealing with. As uh, Ronald Kitchen goes on to say, I don't know why this dude told you this, but I don't socialize with him and he doesn't come to my house. Kitchen asked the Burge if he could use the phone to call his lawyer. With a smile, he walked over and lifted the receiver. Then the smile vanished. He unplugged the handset from its cord and smashed me with it on the side of my head. Do you hear a ringing now, he asked, and thundered out, switching off the lights as he left. Kitchen then said he was moved into a holding area and then to a second room. During these transfers, he caught a glimpse of Marvin Reeves, his grandmother's godson, who was in a different interrogation room and had a massive black eye. It was morning. I could see the sunlight through the window. It had been maybe 12 hours and Kitchen said that he didn't have a scrap of food or a sip of water. That's insane. Anybody anybody would admit to something. I'm sorry, but... Wait, I just... And and, and they trying to finish up this excerpt. Because, I mean, I know... Uh, just to see you, it's just... Yeah. This is, this is the shit. This, is, just, this actually happened. So, it's just... Oh, my God. This makes me so angry. So, as, as Kitchen goes on to say... Detectives appeared and departed. If their tactics differed slightly, they all showed the same rage. Each one made the same threat in so many words. You will say what we tell you to say. After an entire night in the police station, I heard everywhere. My testicles were swollen, and my ribs ached with every breath. When the police finally did let me use the bathroom later on, my urine was red with blood. But the officers knew how to mess up someone real bad without leaving any incriminating wounds. That's why Detective Kill had used open palm slaps when he hit my face. Why Burge had kicked me in the back. Why the one detective had smashed the phone on the top of my head. Why others had used the telephone book to reduce the visual damage from his nightstick. In my mind, only two paths existed. They were either going to torture me to death, or I would have to confess to this crime I didn't do. So, Jeez, it just—I just—it's just frustrating because Kitchen then endured sixteen hours of this abuse and torture, uh-huh. and finally, he relented and signed a confession prepared by Assistant Cook County State Attorney Martin Lukanich. Um, which I mean, who I—I I would immediately—that's sixteen hours, no food, torture. And as we, um, as as Cam gets into that interlude, we are joined by a friend of the podcast, Mike Magel. How are we doing there, pal? Hey, uh, hey how's it going? It's going. Uh, okay, I have to 
So again, we um as we were recording, we were joined in progress by a friend of the podcast, Mike Jones from the Jed and Mike Show, uh, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, uh, who we had to go to college with me and Cam of all times. But again, on this serious uh, topic, we are talking, you know, about the uh, just about in general a history of systematic injustice placed in Chicago Police Department by, you know, African-Americans. And, Mike, um, we were just talking before we uh, had a little delay just about your experiences. Like, everybody, I feel, has an individual, especially as a minority, has just experience that stays with them. And could you share that with us? I think for me, uh, it's it was, it, was two, it was two different, you know, experiences that really poke out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first experience happened when I was 13 years old. I was walking home from middle school, and I was—I uh, wasn't even a part of the group, but there was a group of people walking home from school that was supposed to be in this fight. And literally, um, the cops—I—the—the—some—some I, the, 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 some lady walked by, and because like you know that kids crowd around and stuff like that, and they get in the circle when they get ready for the fight and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. a lady. Literally pulled up in her car. I don't have to tell you what color she was, but she pulled up in the car and was like, "Hey, I'm calling the cops!" And like, she literally like had her cell her cell phone. Now she's calling the cops. Now, granted, these these are middle schoolers, and no, you're not supposed to be fighting and stuff like that. And it probably wasn't smart to do it on a main street with a bunch of cars driving past. But me, I just happened to be uh, a victim of circumstance of having to walk to the high school, which was down the street, to meet my brother and my cousin to get a ride out to my grandmother's house where we were going to stay until my mom got out of work. It just so happens that, you know, as I'm walking, like, I, I don't even pay attention to this fight or whatnot. I just keep on walking. And, like, 15 minutes down the road, I see the cops get both of these, like, like get, get, get three of these girls pulled over or whatnot, and, and, and I'm walking by them like, Mike, I'm like, Lord, if there's ever a time that you could just shield me, please let it be right now. And literally, the cops are talking to these girls, and these girls point to me like, he was with them, he was with one of them. I'm like, oh, my God. Now, now one of the girls that was getting ready to fight was my friend. But I had nothing to do with that fight. I didn't even know they were going to fight. I mm-hmm. had no squams, no, no, no dog in the fight or nothing like that to care less. I just wanted to get to my brother because I knew that my mother – who was picking us up from the high school had to be back to work by a certain time. And if you weren't there, she was going to leave. Right now. Mm-hmm. Now my mom trying to be a uh, smart and wise. And us lose my uncle's mm-hmm. to go to school out in the suburbs. So, um, Basically, these cops, I guess they must have knew I went from around there or something like that. Maybe it was the way I dressed, the way I talked, or what have you. But they knew I went from around there. But my uncle lived two blocks over from where they had these girls stop. Mm-hmm. Now, I um, these cops make me come, and they stop me, and they, they stop me from walking by. They make me come down there, and they make me talk to them. Now, granted, I had nothing to do with this. They had no reason to stop me or anything like that. But they take down all my information, my phone number, my mother's phone number, her job, her job number, everything like that. And like I say, and they just hassle me for like 15, 20 minutes about my uncle's address. 
And because I couldn't remember my, my uncle's phone number, they made me sit there on the on the street, sit 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 down or whatnot in, in front of the cop car or whatnot on the street while everybody drove oh, by. No. And I, 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 I looked like I was some type of common criminal. Like I did something wrong. It's because I had your boat straps on and a Sean John T-shirt oh, and some white Air Force Ones. That's 2006 and I fit for the you. Bill of what you would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and so basically, and, and it, get, it gets even worse than that. The cop is like, okay, I tell you what, since you have to meet at the, uh, since you have to meet your brother at the school, I'll drive you over to the school. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I'll go around to the front of the car and I'm, I'm going to try to get on the passenger side in the front of the car. He's like, no, all my papers are up here. You got to get in the back. Thank you. So he made me get in the back that was caged off that hard seat back there. Now, mind you, I'm 13 years old. In middle school, and I have no business being in the back of a cop car, mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how upset my mother was at me because she thought I put myself in that situation, right? Not realizing like I was a victim of circumstances that whole situation. Mm-hmm. Like I said, so that was that was that was, and I just remember that cop just being so smug and so rude, and like I said, not understanding at all. And um, that was my first chance, uh, first happenstance, first instance to. To meet up with a police officer, um, and I really didn't have any more, many more run-ins after that until I got a car. Mm-hmm. I did, like I said, for proximity's sake, because you know we still have stuff to come uncover. But however, I do want to do this quick, uh, quick story. I remember when I was uh, I was riding with you uh, while we were on campus, UIS, and uh-huh. I remember I never forget it. I think you were picking me up from Crows. And they stopped you pretty much you DWB, as we say as we say in the community, driving while black. And it was like they said some some kind of bullshit citation or your it, it was some phony shit, but I'll never forget the look of anger in your face and it's it, it's it's it takes a lot to get you angry. You know, they call this man a gentle diet giant. But to see just the the, the reaction on his face, that's that's what being an African American is like when you deal with law enforcement. You know, that's no and and and, and, sad, and sad to say that wasn't the first time that happened at UIS while I was DWB mm-hmm. or whatnot. Like I I, I when, when when I had Red Robin, I was I was driving off of campus to head down to Raymond, and um, a cop stopped me because he said I looked like the I, I looked like the build that fit the mold of a young man that report that that got called in a report that he was gonna beat up his girlfriend. Or whatnot, or something like that, and I'm like, was gonna beat up his girlfriend. What? That just makes right. no fucking sense. Yeah, like it, like it didn't even happen, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, so you know, again, you know, I I, I, I go on and on and on, but I, I I take up your whole podcast here. Oh yeah, but I'm not even taking up. I got targeted. Right. I got, I got targeted because of my color, or because of my size, or because of the way my car looked. Because that's another thing they'll target. If you got a beater car. Cops will stop you on purpose just to see if there's something wrong. If your plates are off, if your sticker is messed up, or something like that, something they can ticket you off of, and they and, and, and they pray on cars that for be. Oh yeah, I got pulled over all the time in my Firebird. I have not gotten pulled over in my Jelly Bean, which jelly. is a Chevy Spark. Me either. Since since I, since I got white lightning, the my my uh my what's the name my my uh my white twenties twenty seventeen uh uh Chevy. Out there, mm-hmm. like I, I've got gotten pulled over one time, and I and I and I and I, I've written with an expired sticker, and still never gotten pulled over. Mike, <laughs> Jesus Christ, what the fuck are you doing? Pull the room. 
fuck? I, I, it, was, it was like a couple days expired. You're not in Missouri. You can't do that in Illinois. You're not in Missouri. Jesus. So, so getting back into um, Ronald Kitchens. Um, so, again, as Cam alluded, uh, he endured 16 hours of abuse and torture. And after he finally relented. But... That said, the trial proceedings went ahead. He was, again, arraigned on first-degree murder, five counts, and based solely on Williams, Willie Williams' testimony and the confession obtained by Detective Michael Kill, a jury found Ronald Kitchen guilty on September 19, 1990, and he was sentenced to death. Reeves, Marvin Reeves was tried separately and convicted by a jury on May 28, 1991, based substantially on Kitchen's purported admission to Willie Williams and was sentenced to life. So, by the time Kitchen and Reeves were sentenced, the misdeeds of John Burge and his fellow detectives would start to come to public life. In 1989, seven years after his arrest in 1982, Andrew Wilson filed a civil suit against four detectives, including John Burge, a former, uh, including a former police superintendent and the city of Chicago. So when Birch took the stand a month um, in March, he denied that he injured Wilson during any questioning and denied any knowledge of any such activity by any other officers. Wilson's legal team uh, had anonymous letters during the trial from a whistleblower claiming to be an officer who worked with Birch. Mind you, whistleblower is a new term? Is that a new term? No, I mean, you have... I have not heard that term before until, like, I first heard it. I first heard during Watergate and Deep Throat. I thought Monica Lewinsky was a whistleblower. Is that a whistleblower? Um, I mean, a different type of whistleblower. Oh, I see where you're going through in more ways than one. And I'm surprised. I'm surprised you didn't get Deep Throat and like, oh boy. But no, um, um, whistleblower. I would say she was implicated, but no, I wouldn't say she. A whistleblower is somebody who just says, "Hey, you're blowing the whistle on some on some shady shit's going on." Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify uh, Monica Lewinsky in that line. But that said, yeah. yeah. But she is kind of a type of whistleblower. Just now. okay, cool. Yes. Just I just have been hearing it so much now than ever before. So I'm like, sorry. Guys. So, anyways, this whistleblower—excuse uh, me—whistleblower claimed to be an officer who worked with Burge. This person alleged that w- the Wilson case was part of a larger pattern of police torture of African American suspects, which was sanctioned by Burge. U.S. District Judge Brian Barnett—oh, I'm sorry, Brian Barnett Duff—did not permit the jury to hear this anonymous evidence. In overtime, the case, uh, the cases of, of the other officers named in Wilson's suit saw their conclusions. On March 15, 1989, Sergeant Thomas McKenna was acquitted of brutality. And on March 30, 1989, Detective John Eukiatis and Patrick O'Hara were also acquitted of charges by a unanimous jury. However, the jury was at an impasse regarding Burge. Duff ordered a retrial for Burge, and um, former police superintendent Richard uh, Barshevich—I'm sorry. Yeah, Barshevich. I think that's close enough. Barshevich. I'm. Um, I'm sorry about that. I butchered that. Um, and the city of Chicago on two other outstanding charges. 
conspiracy in whether the city of Chicago's policy toward police brutality contributed to Wilson's injuries. Now, Birch was acquitted of these charges in a second trial, which began on June 9, 1989, and lasted nine weeks. So, the verdict in that civil case had two points. Jurors uh, saw that the city of Chicago employed a policy of using excessive force on suspected killers of police officers, but Wilson specifically had not been tortured, according to them. But as time came out, more victims came forward with their stories. All had similar M.O.s of the ordeal they faced, which included, again, beatings, electrocution, assault to the genital area, suffocation. In majority of the cases, the victims were forced to confess to crimes that they didn't commit. With the number of victims mounting, this led to an internal hearing conducted in 1992, and with it, the Chicago Police Board eventually found Barge guilty of physically abusing Wilson a decade prior, and it facilitated his firing the police force on February 10th, 1993. And Wilson had to go through a decade of mayhem. Of he, Not only did he have to go through a decade of people not believing him, mm-hmm. he has constantly relived his ordeal over and over and over again. And there was this belief by many that despite this overwhelming burden of proof and evidence against Burge, he was safeguarded by the statute of limitations. However, that changed in October 2008, when Burge was arrested in, Flor- in his Florida retirement home by FBI agents. U.S. Attorney for the North- Northern District of Illinois, Patrick Fitzgerald, charged Burge with two counts of obstruction of justice and one count of perjury. If convicted on all these charges, Burge could have faced a maximum of 40 years in prison for the two obstruction counts and five years on the perjury account. The charges were a result of wrongly convicted felon Madison Hobley's 2003 civil rights lawsuit alleging police beatings, electric shocks, and death threats by Burge and other officers against him after four officers alleged that Hobley admitted to setting an apartment on fire They killed his wife, infant son, and five other people early in the morning of January 6, 1987. This is an ongoing, repetitive Mm -hmm. problem that happened 150 times, and people didn't believe it. I'll say this. How do you not believe it? I have a personal... It's the same story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I was in school, and when I was going to school at Harold Washington College, uh, it was, I had a U.S. history class. And I remember it was two black people in the class. It was me and this guy named Gregory. Smart dude, like smart brother, like just articulate, just like always, you know, always had like points of discussion and like just cool, just a cool brother. And I remember we were having a, um, the, the professor was having a discussion on like police brutality. I think it was and pertains to uh, Fred Hampton. That's something that we, when we talk about Chicago Police Department, that episode that we will be talking about down the road uh, for sure. But um, Gregory had, like, said, hey, um, I know you guys are not going to believe this, but, you know, I was a victim of, you know, police brutality. And he actually started going into detail about being a torture victim of John Burge. And I remember, I think he said it was like in 1982, like I don't know, I got the, the dates fuzzy, but I remember he said they had got him in for murder. They, all of the stuff that we were talking about, the he was suffocated, he was beat up, 
genitals and all that stuff. And I think he served about at least, he ended up in a wrongful conviction. He served about 20-something years. Uh, eventually, when all the shit had went down for her, like, he eventually oh got God. out. But it's just like, you you talk about this years, a, a half century of his life, just this wiped out. didn't happen a hundred it didn't happen. No, this happened in the seventies. This happened in the eighties. This happened in the yeah. early nineteen nineties. This happened like you know the generation before us. This happened when majority, if not everybody listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. was alive. Yeah, and you have to understand. You have to understand, guys. Like John, where John Burge was, you know, jurisdict where he was jurisdicted at. That's only less than a mile to where my, you know, where my family lived at the time. So. Like, yeah, that's this shit is just whoa. Exactly, and, and we don't even know half the stories. Of that's the scary thing, talk. and that's the scary thing. So, John, and, oh yeah, my bad. You go. No, I was just saying, and and again, it's frustrating because we know so many people that work their butts off to be the good behind the blue line, mm-hmm. and then you have fuckers like Burge who thinks he can just do whatever the fuck he wants. Because mm-hmm. he's bad and... Oh, yeah. So, John Burge pleaded not guilty and was released on 250000 That's right. <laughs> uh, Fitzgerald noted that although Burge was being charged with lying, he was not charged with the torture to which the statute of limitations applied, even though he believed Burge to be guilty of that. In uh, the press conference, alluding to after being arrested, uh, Fitzgerald stated that Burge had quote-unquote lied and impeded court proceedings during his 2003 written testimony concerning uh, Hobley, and in the indictment, the prosecution stated that Burge understood it that he was a participant in and was aware of quote-unquote such events involving the abuse or torture of people in custody. Burge's trial began on May 26, 2010, Burt, which is what, oh my god, a decade to the day of we're recording. Um, Burge testified in his own defense for six hours on June 17th and on subsequent days. And June 17th is the two-year anniversary coming up of this podcast. Just another fun fact. But closing arguments were heard on June 24th and jury deliberations began the next day. And finally, on June 28th, 2010, Burge was convicted on all three counts two counts of obstruction of justice and one count of perjury. And that's that's nothing on what he actually deserves. No, no. And and that's what makes me so angry too is mm-hmm. again this is pre- all of these are premeditated. All, all of, these, of this. This is the thing and this is the, the kind of like my little my little tidbit. There is just so much like again there's the, all of these detectives that had their hand in this torture. Only Burge was the one who served prison time. You had many, you had many uh, officers who either they were brought to trial, they were uh, acquitted. Some never even faced uh, an indictment. They got to serve out their retirements and live natural lives. Yeah, and you just talk about. I mean, it's just. They got away with that shit. And that's kind of shit that really pisses me me off. 
Oh. How, how can you have a living conscience knowing that you do that to people? Like, mm-hmm. it frustrates me that people forget that we are all humans. We should not be fighting one another. We should be working together. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it, it drives me crazy because, I mean, I guess I was one of those people where I was like, nah, I'm invincible, this doesn't happen, blah, blah, blah. But oh, until yeah. it happens, like, when I almost lost my life, it, a lot changes. A lot fucking changes. And you, until it happens to you, you you don't care about other humans, and that's what's wrong with. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. And, and it makes me mad, because I started, we started reading this, and I was like, oh, well, I would, you know, torture and beat mm-hmm. you up if I killed somebody I love, but nobody deserves this. Nobody. Yeah. Um... But anyways, on January 21st, 2011, Birch was sentenced to only four and a half years in a federal prison. You guys, four and a half years. I, I was hoping he'd get 40 because then he would, that would be technically life. Mm-hmm. And this is what makes me mad. He got four and a half years in federal prison by U.S. District Judge Joan Lefko. The federal probation office uh, had recommended a 15 to 21 month sentence, while prosecutors had requested as much as 30 years, which he should have gotten. Should have gotten. Birch served his sentence at the Federal Correction Institute, Butner Low near Butler, or uh, Butner, excuse me, um, North Carolina. Birch's projected release date was February 14, 2015. However, he was released from prison. October 3rd, 2014. 2014. And he plans to file federal civil lawsuits against Burge, Daly, and others who were announced in 2010. Oh, wait, did I read something wrong? No, 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 no. So, so like, no, as it was happening, there were plans to file. So, he wasn't doing it. It was going to file against him, uh, Richard Daly, and others. This makes me so angry. On April 14, uh, 2015, you guys, that was five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, announced the creation of a $5.5 million city fund for individuals who could prove that they were victimized within a month. As for Michael Kitchen and Marvin Reese, who were the victims of this torture, the Illinois Appellate Court reverse Reeves conviction in 1995. Finding that the judge had erred in admitting Williams' hearsay account of his conversation with Kitchen. Upon retrial, Reeves was again convicted and again sentenced to life. Um, and that conviction was affirmed in 2000. In 2003, Judge Paul Beeble Jr., the presiding judge, excuse me, presiding judge of Cook County Circuit Court Criminal Division, Remove the Cook County State Attorney Office from all post-conviction proceedings mm-hmm. involving torture allegations because Cook County State Attorney Dick Devane, um, while in private practice, had represented Burge in civil suits involving alleged torture. Um, Beeble ordered Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan to take over the case. Yes, Queen. <laughs> so over the next six years, as evidence continued to mount regarding the extent of torture uh, in which... Burge and his men had engaged. Uh, Madigan's office reinvestigated the, again, uh, Ronald Kitchen, and Mike, my bad on that note, uh, Ronald Kitchen and Martin Reeves' case. On July 7, 2009, 
Madigan agreed to vacate the convictions and dismiss all charges against Kitchen and Reeves. Six weeks later, Judge Bible granted them certificates, uh, certificates of innocence. Subsequently, Kitchen and Reeves were each awarded $199,000 in state compensation. And in September of 2013, the city of Chicago agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by Kitchen worth $6.1 million. Okay, Kitchen deserves that. Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to say, that's all they got for how many years of going in and out of court, telling the truth because in the system trying to hide it? Like, mm-hmm. And um, as for, finally, as for John Burge, he died at the age of 70 on September 19th, 2018, at his home in Apollo Beach, Florida, of prostate cancer. If one thinks that he ever had remorse for his actions, consider this antidote. Antidote. When it came out that the city of Chicago was considering financial compensation for the torture victims, Burge came out and he was baffled that the city leadership could quote-unquote even contemplate giving reparations to human vermin. And... With that, I say, uh, I, you know, that man is maggot food right now. Uh, man, you talk about just a piece of dog flesh shit that John Burns was. I'm glad he had prostate cancer. Maybe he got some type of feeling of what it felt like to have your genitals shocked and Mm -hmm. fucking beat up and. And that's oh. what makes me mad. He died in his home. Mm-hmm. And he probably he di- didn't think twice about what he did. He no. probably thought... No, the fact, the fact himself. that he had no organic. He said, why is the city giving quote-unquote to human vermin? You talk about a piece of fucking shit. And again, as we have seen in the news with what's happened in Minneapolis what happened with the nurse in Louisville, and when we talk about African-Americans and law enforcement, and what we've been talking about for the last hour, it's just pretty much been a... Again, this is a microcosm of why there is so much distrust within the African-American community and law enforcement. Um, And as I say this, I lost connection with Cam... Which, you know, that's it's kind of funny because we are wrapping up again. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is the case of John Burge. Um, you can find Cam on, and we're going to say we uh, do hope that, you know, when we do post this on social media, on our Facebook page, that, you know, we do get a lot of, uh, get some feedback, you know, what, what we do bad, good, you know, whatnot. But we really want to get, you know, something to get you guys talking because this is just something that's just like, wow. You know, just uncovering this, just doing the notes, doing the research, and just while we were recording, just getting just utterly pissed off. And this shit actually happened. And this shit continues to happen as we see. And when is enough enough? So, again, um, you can find Cam on social media or you can find her on Facebook, Cam E. Wren. Uh, you can also find her on Instagram, on, I know it's not Barbo Ho, it is, hope for that, um, back, you can find her on Instagram on Cameron B, there we go, that was Barbo Ho, so she fucking changes it, <laughs> and you can find her on Twitter, on I Like Stuff 630, and you can find me on Facebook, uh, Alex Camp, you can find me 
on the gram of Insta, the world according to Alex Camp, and you can find me on the Twitter for Birdman for America. And for our page, podcast page, you can find us on Killinois with Bird and Cam. We are wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, SoundCloud, again, wherever you can find us. Again, this uh, for Cam, this is Bird uh, signing out. And this is uh, Illinois with Bird and Cam. Be there or be killed, bitches.